Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Do we want to take a quick picture before we get started? Sure. Okay. Let me adjust my lighting so it's not terrifying. Find your light. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Ready? Find your light, bitches. Exactly. One, two, three. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said... I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Hello, and welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. We're your hosts. I'm Melissa Murray. And I'm Leah Littman. And today we have an episode that will preview the arguments that the court will hear in the first week of the December sitting. And we also thought we would use the court culture segment to speculate about potential nominees in the Biden-Harris administration, specifically nominees to various posts within the Department of Justice. We'll also offer the Biden-Harris administration some unsolicited free but really awesome advice on potential nominees at DOJ. So stay tuned for that. And for those of you who need a little signposting, we will start off with breaking news, as we always do, and then we'll preview the sitting, and then we will shift to court culture. So Leah, do you want to kick us off with the breaking news? Sure. So first and foremost, Robert Mueller slash Mueller investigation on ICE. The court took off the calendar, the oral argument in DOJ versus House Committee on Judiciary about Congress's access to secret materials from the Mueller investigation. The committee told the justices that once a new Congress and President-elect Biden take office, they will have to determine whether to continue Congress's efforts to obtain the redacted portions of the Mueller report and the materials on which it relied. I guess they didn't get the memo that all of the election was a fraud and the case leading the President Trump to be installed at the White House is about to be decided any day, argued by Rudy Giuliani anyways. Mueller on ice. What what to say? Um, Yeah, we'll stay tuned for that and see how that develops. Um, We had a really interesting development in the 11th Circuit around the question of conversion therapy. So a case called Otto versus City of Boca Raton, which is very close and near to my heart because I grew up in South Florida, and Boca was where all of the really cosmopolitan happenings happened when I was a child. So I was like, Boca Raton, my ears perked up. In any event, um, both Palm Beach County and the city of Boca Raton prohibit conversion therapy. And the plaintiffs here, Otto and Hamilton, are state-licensed marriage and family therapists who want to be able to perform conversion therapy on patients. 
They filed suit to permanently enjoin the enforcement of the ordinances, arguing that the ordinances are content-based speech restrictions that evince viewpoint discrimination, thereby violating their First Amendment rights to free speech. The county and the city argue that the ordinances are permissible regulations on professional conduct and thus are not entitled to the most rigorous First Amendment protections. In a two-to-one decision by Trump appointees Barbara Lagoa and Britt Grant, the 11th Circuit concluded that the therapist had satisfied the standard for a preliminary injunction. And there's a little snippet of the opinion, which I thought was really interesting. Um, They concede that the decision allows speech that many find concerning and even dangerous. But consider the alternative. If speech restrictions in these ordinances can stand, then so can their inverse. Local communities could prevent therapists from validating a client's same-sex attractions if the city council deemed that message harmful. And the same goes for gender transition. Counseling supporting a client's gender identification could be banned. So again, they're sort of doing this kind of both sides and, you know, what if, like slippery slope kind of First Amendment parade of horribles. Interestingly, Judge Beverly Martin, who is an Obama appointee, filed a dissenting opinion here. So I think that's something that will surely be appealed to the Supreme Court. And that would be a really interesting case to provide sort of, again, another gloss on how the First Amendment um, is being used in lots of different ways um, and in ways that I think are really important for the broader question of civil rights and specifically rights of the LGBTQ community. Yeah, um, Anna Belkin and Sejal Singh have a wonderful post on this opinion and its implications on the Take Care blog. And, you know, the reasoning of the 11th Circuit basically strongly suggests, if not holds, that any regulation of any kind of talk therapy is subject to strict scrutiny, given that it is just words. You know, I take the majority's point that, you know, if you allow states and localities to regulate professional speech. Sometimes they will do it in ways you don't like. Um, But what I think that the passage you read fails to acknowledge is, of course, the court's prior decisions have said that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation triggers heightened scrutiny. So if you are mandating discrimination against those communities, you're already going to run afoul of other constitutional prohibitions. And that's, you know, put nothing to the side of all of the evidence in this case is about how harmful conversion therapy is. Conversion therapy, which I guess we didn't explain, is basically trying to convince um, gays, lesbians, bisexuals that they are not, in fact, gay, lesbian, or bisexual and transgender individuals, that they're not transgender. And there's a bunch of, again, like scientific evidence about the consequences of those therapies, whereas, again, like the reverse rule where the state attempts to prohibit counselors from supporting gays and lesbians or transgender individuals would both not be based in evidence and also discriminate on the basis of protected characteristics. All right. So we'll stay tuned for that one as well. I mean, another, again, really interesting decision. All female panel. So that was kind of exciting on the 11th Circuit. Um, But again, Barbara Lagoa, who was in the running for the seat that ultimately went to Justice Amy Coney Barrett um, and Britt Grant, so both Trump appointees. And I think Judge Grant is actually very young. In, in she was appointed a, when she was 40. She clerked yeah. for Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit. So, yeah, yeah she is quite young. So look so again, forward that, to decades after decades of these decisions. Good times. Okay. Snaps. Speaking of the not so young, um, oh, okay, I felt that. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. 
Um, I, like, I, it's been a it's been a hard weekend for <laughs> the forty and up crowd because Jennifer Lopez dropped that new album in the morning where she's featured on the cover in all of her over. Like, is she like fifty or something? Okay, she's I was about 50, to say I it's think. a great weekend for the over forty crowd. Uh, it's a great given weekend how J Lo and you're J Lo. It's not a great weekend if you're like <laughs> over forty and me. <laughs> it was like again. J-Lo, Kate, and me are the poster children for the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, this, that was crazy. Like that was absolutely, she is slaying that album cover. And she has a Peloton. She does. doing it? Because I have a Peloton too, and I'm not doing that. (laughs) That's not happening. Just give it a little time. I mean, you got yours pretty recently. So (laughs) she's had hers for like 150 years. That's how she has (laughs) the results. Hats off to you, Jennifer Lopez. Hats off to you. (laughs) Speaking of older workers, um, Dianne Weinstein uh, announced – Dianne Weinstein is a senator from California. She announced that she will not be seeking the ranking member post on the Senate Judiciary Committee. This, of course, follows from a bunch of outrage over her conduct at the Barrett hearings, the Kavanaugh hearings, and in general, you know, being dismissive of climate activists, hugging Lindsey Graham in a maskless, just absurd way, and publicly congratulating him on a set of terrific hearings. But given her announcement, there's now a question about who's going to replace her. Dick Durbin, um, who is the whip, announced he will seek the position. But since he's already the whip, the caucus would have to vote and decide whether it's permissible to have both the powerful whip position and this plum committee leadership post. Um, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island indicated he would look forward to the Democratic caucus voting on who the replacement would be, seemingly signaling, you know, that this is up for discussion and also his potential interest in the post. Well, I think he's he's very definitely interested given, I mean, he had that big whiteboard energy at the Barrett confirmation where he tried to explain to the public um, the sort of links between judicial nominations and some of these other conservative money groups. Um, I, I think it's very clear he's interested. In I want that big whiteboard this. energy, you know, chairing one day and at least ranking member um, on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um Anyways, that's my personal preference to the extent you care, Democratic Senate caucus. That's the first of our unsolicited (laughs) pro bono advice to the Democratic caucus. The first of Leah's hot takes. Yeah, we try Um, to be helpful. We try. We try very hard. Um, Is there anyone else who could be challenging Durbin for the position? I mean, it's possible, but no one else has kind of issued any statements or weighed in signaling potential interest. But, you know, there are other great members of the committee, you know, who are Mm -hmm. pretty skilled questioners who I think could be effective leaders, you know. And you you don't have to be a lawyer to chair this committee at all, or even be on the committee for that matter. Um, So you can imagine a whole range of people, very high profile people being interested perhaps in this. So another really important CERT grant that we want to talk about is Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid. And we mentioned this very briefly. Um, I think you guys mentioned it in the live show at Duke. Um, uh, but to just be very quick about it, the Supreme Court will hear a challenge to a California regulation that allows union organizers access to agricultural workers at employer work sites. So 
brief entry to the work site to speak to farm workers, for example, before work or after work or while workers are on a break or eating lunch. And the regulation was the product of a campaign by Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers to force agribusinesses to permit organizing and bargaining by agricultural workers. Um, and so, again, I think the take on this is that allowing the organizers into the workplace is constituting a taking. I think that's the claim that's basically being made here. So a taking of property, which I'm just going to say makes me a little uncomfortable. Like the idea that access to your workers constitutes a taking sort of creates the idea that the workers themselves well, are Well, now is, is allowing health inspectors onto a property now a taking or OSHA, like all of it. I mean, it, it's, right. it's really, I mean, so, I mean, one, it's sort of thinking about any of these things as takings sort of expands the kind of challenges you could make to ordinary regulations that many businesses are subject to, like, as you say, health regulations, OSHA, whatnot. Um, But then I'm just thinking in a more fundamental way, like the farm workers are among some of the most important workers in California's economy and work under the most difficult conditions, I, I think it's fair to say. And sort of to say that having access to them is a kind of property that this government regulation takes is like kind of gross. And anyway, so just the idea of people as property, not surprisingly, I'm uncomfortable with. (laughs) Not surprisingly. More more free advice to the court. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wait, can we just note, we're alone together and yeah this, this is this is when happens. trouble happens <laughs> <laughs> kate was supposed to be recording with us but she there a, was an emergency she, she had a, a and she she left us to our own devices so <laughs> really when you think about it it's kind of her fault <laughs> it's blame it on kate <laughs> um okay so we're recording this day after Thanksgiving, um, and some turkeys were pardoned. The president pardoned Corn the turkey, and also some guy named Michael Flynn, the unregistered agent of Turkey, who was an unregistered agent while he was national security advisor. I think this Good is times. not the first set of pardons we're going to see as this lame duck president continues to pardon turkeys. No. No. I agree. Um, I think the question is just who else is he going to pardon? Well, I mean, I'm... Not to use any poultry puns, but I think he has rather unfeathered discretion in this area. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're high on tryptophan. <laughs> unfeathered discretion, um, a free-range president in the pardon area, um, uncaged. <laughs> pardoning foul play all over the place. Everyone's just going to be gobbling up all of those pardons. Good times. Okay. Okay. Um, So now until January 20th, like we're on the Pardon Express. On the eve of Thanksgiving, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring except SCOTUS Mouse. There there were some really important developments at the court on Thanksgiving Eve. So in a five to four decision in Roman Catholic Diocese versus Cuomo with several justices writing, the court effectively enjoined New York's 10 and 25 person limits on gatherings. And there were serious questions about whether or not this particular dispute was moot and whether it was proper for the court to issue this disposition because the Cuomo administration hasn't actually enforced it, right? So they said they were not enforcing it. 
Right, right. So the challenged executive order limits religious services to 10 persons in red zones and 25 persons in orange zones. So by the time the court adjudicated this dispute, the congregations and synagogues who brought the challenge were not actually in red or orange zones. And so they could have services with up to 50% capacity. And the court was like, let's just do it and be legends and enjoin it anyway. So that was fun. Um. So that was interesting. So there was this whole question of, did the court even need to speak on this question? I think that was the chief justice's opinion. That was basically his point. Like, you know, judicial modesty is a thing. Judicial restraint is a thing. We actually don't need to wade into this question because it's not actually a question that's teed up right now. You thought that the court's delay in acting on this application weakened the case for relief. Can you say more about this, Leah? Yeah, well, they've been sitting on it now for over two weeks. And again, a, you know, a traditional factor that is supposed to entitle you to a stay or an injunction is imminent yeah. risk of, of harm. harm. And, you know, partly because the regulations were no longer in effect, partly because the court just sat on this for two weeks, it just didn't seem like there was a powerful showing of imminent risk of harm here. But that didn't really matter when it came right down to it. So this is a decision that, again, I think we have said that a decision like this was coming. So it marks, I think, a very consequential shift in the court's receptivity to claims of religious liberty. So the court came to the conclusion that the order was not neutral with respect to religion and therefore required heightened scrutiny and possibly um, signals that there are going to be a lot of government regulations that will likely be invalidated for the same reasons. Like they have an impact on religious institutions, even though the intent of the regulation is to be broadly applicable to a range of different institutions. So yeah. Tell me a little bit, Leah, about some of the statements that the court thought evinced that kind of hostility to religion. Yeah. So in addition to the effect on religious practices, um, the court seemed to identify two other bases for thinking that this discriminated on the basis of religion. And one of those reasons were statements by Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, um, about the origins of the rule and its applications to religious organizations. And specifically, Governor Cuomo had noted the prevalence of coronavirus in certain Orthodox Jewish communities. And large gatherings associated with large gatherings that continued to happen. So this was a big deal in New York City. And it's not just Cuomo who was sort of under fire for this from religious communities, but Bill de Blasio also got a lot of blowback about this as well. So those statements, I think, were sort of targeted as part of the hostility toward religion. Um, And then the court itself said that the rule was not neutral with regard to religion because it singled out places of worship for especially harsh treatment. And as an example of that, they noted that quote-unquote essential businesses that were not subject to the cap included things like acupuncture facilities, campgrounds, garages, and whatnot. And so it seemed, at least to them, that religious institutions were being unfairly singled out. But not everyone on the court thought that. Yeah. So um, Justice Sotomayor's dissent, you know, took issue with both of these bases for concluding that there was religious discrimination and Justice Breyer's dissent took issue with some of them. Um, And in particular, Justice Sotomayor's dissent said, you know, just a few terms ago, this court declined to apply heightened scrutiny to a presidential proclamation limiting immigration from a Muslim majority country, even though President Trump had described the proclamation as a Muslim ban. So if the president's statements didn't show that the challenge restrictions violate the minimum requirements of new neutrality. Hard to see how Governor Cuomo's do. I kind of love this. This is like Justice Sotomayor being like, hello, I keep receipts in my bag. 
Yeah. All the time. Like a big old CVS receipt for you. Here it is. I thought this was a really great effective dissent by her, you know, in part by drawing Mm -hmm. out this hypocrisy. Um, And I was also extremely pleased that Justice Kagan joined joined her her in this dissent. But so here, this is a strategic question. Tell me what your thoughts are. Why didn't the three the three liberal dissenters just join this dissent? Like, why did Breyer write separately? I mean, Justice Breyer is going to Breyer. He wants to go into all of the amicus briefs reciting like the scientific evidence. They had statistics. The for, I wanted to talk exactly. About the statistics. He wanted to talk about, like, the spittle and the singing being, you know, particularly yeah. high risks. You know, th- this is a very, you know, Briar topic of yeah. interest. Exactly. Exactly. I do think it would have been more effective if they all three of them had joined Justice Sotomayor's dissent, which yeah. was, I think, the more uh, forceful and clear in its thinking in terms of the dissents. I agree. Um, you know, it's a little spicier than Elena usually orders, but glad she's getting on board. You know, the the other basis for finding discrimination was the idea that religious organizations were not treated similarly to similarly situated organizations. And then, of course, there's the question about, well, what is a similarly situated organization and service? Um, And Justice Gorsuch's separate writing really drilled down on this question, um, suggesting that, you know, Bicycle repair shops, signage companies, accountants, lawyers, and insurance agents are essential. And then he poses this question like, so according to the governor, it may be unsafe to go to church, but it's always fine to pick up another bottle of wine, shop for a new bike. And it's like, well, this I thought was kind of East Coast elitism, like firing at this kind of idea of the East Coast elites, because he talks about... um, it's always fine to pick up another bottle of wine, shop for a new bike, or spend the afternoon exploring your distal points and meridians. <laughs> like, have we ever talked about acupuncture in a SCOTUS opinion? Like, this might have been a first. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is, but it's just you know the confidence with which he was able to assert that these things are just so obviously similar. When I, I think you know, at least the the shopping for a new bike and the picking up another bottle of wine, like those oftentimes happen in conjunction with essential services like grocery stores, which you surely can't close. And of course, you're not talking with other people for long periods of time. What was even more interesting was the spiciness between the chief and Justice Gorsuch. So what's going on here? So the chief and Justice Gorsuch were sniping at one another in the concurrences they each wrote separately. Um, Justice Gorsuch had a whole section on the chief justice's concurrence in an earlier um, stay application decision dealing with a coronavirus response, South Bay Pentecostal. Um, Justice Gorsuch said that concurrence, you know, reached back 100 years in the U.S. reports. Didn't realize that would be so offensive to originalists, side note. Um, And then, you know, has this uh, line, we may not shelter in place when the Constitution is under attack. The chief justice was not having Well, no, but it wasn't under that. Like, like the Constitution can take a holiday for the pandemic, but it cannot take a sabbatical. I feel injured by that comment. What do you think a sabbatical is? Like, what is is happening on sabbatical? Like, this sabbatical that I'm on right now is like a wash in edits and Zoom school and, like, writing a bunch of stuff. And, like, I am not kicking back on the sabbatical at all. Yeah. Um, Sabbaticals are work. So if the Constitution, maybe the Constitution should take a sabbatical and work, (laughs) get get the work on. Um, So I thought Um, that was interesting. 
Yes. Uh, so the chief was not amused um, and notes that, you know, while Jacobson occupies three pages of today's concurrence, it warranted one sentence in South Bay. And that sentence was completely unobjectionable, just that, you know, states primarily regulate safety and health. Um, and the chief then says, you know, the concurrence speculates that there is so much more to the sentence than meets the eye, but the actual proposition asserted should be uncontroversial, and the concurrence must reach beyond the words themselves to find the target it is looking for. All right, so let's boil this down. All right, we have had a number of these COVID restriction cases that have come up before the court to resolve on a very quick basis, um, and they came out the other way. That, of course, was prior to Friday, September 18th, 2020, when Justice Ginsburg passed away. And so, again, I think we're seeing the consequences of her seat being filled by a conservative member. Amy COVID Barrett. By a conservative member of the court. Um, (laughs) And and we predicted this. So I just want to point out that the ladies of strict scrutiny were... We had this down on September 19th. And, you know, we said this, like we were going to see a kind of diminution of the chief justice's authority to sort of corral and control the conservative block of the court. And I, I think that's right. Um, it's been speculated that this opinion, though unsigned, is probably Justice Barrett's creation. Do you think that's right? I think it's her or Justice Thomas. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh each wrote separate concurrences, so it seems unlikely to be them. It also did not read like Justice Alito's style to me. It was very mild. It was a mild and measured opinion. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I I, I don't. Anyways, I don't know between those two. I'm just going to point out that we've been saying this, which is why I, on November 25th, when reading the paper, um, I was reading the LA Times online, and there was an op-ed from Aaron Tang, who's a law professor at UC Davis. And and basically, the top line of the op-ed was that the court is sort of staking out a kind of centrist position. And as evidence for this, um, Aaron, who is our friend, we like him very much, looked to the court's signals that they were sending, he said, at oral argument, um, particularly in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia and some of these other cases where it seemed like they were trying to sort of thread the needle and come out with these sort of narrow ways to resolve these very controversial cases. And, you know, Aaron thought this indicated that despite the addition of a sixth conservative justice, the court was actually seeking to be more centrist in its disposition of really important issues. That literally lasted seven hours. Like that <laughs> that op-ed came out and then this opinion dropped, like I guess at like seven o'clock in the evening or something. Um, and, and it just kind of blew up the rosy vision of centrist compromise that Aaron had crafted. But we never thought that that was going to happen in the first place. We were never on this compromise bus. We never saw that as an option. No. Um, and I remain firmly on that bus. Um, but I think, you know, it's possible, of course, that the court could have written this opinion in more absurd, far-reaching ways, right? Like announcing, we overturn Jacobson, we overturn Employment Division versus Smith and all of these things. But that shouldn't be the measure by which you assess whether the court is moderate or centrist. Instead, you have to look at how is the law changing and the implications of the court's reasoning. Because again, if Cuomo's statements evince hostility to religion, well, that gives courts a ton of latitude to say a bunch of generally applicable 
laws and policies discriminate on the basis of religion. And if the court maintains the ability to say that religious organizations are not similarly situated to the essential businesses that were allowed to continue to operate under this order, like that too give courts a substantial power and a lot of discretion to say, well, this rule isn't truly generally applicable because it doesn't treat churches similarly to similarly situated secular institutions. Anyways, like that wasn't the only op-ed worth talking about. The Pope came out with an op-ed. Who would have thunk it, right? So the Pope had an op-ed in the New York Times um, that came out shortly after this decision dropped. And basically, the Pope was like, I'm with Sonia. Yeah, right. So specifically, uh, the New York Times op-ed said, you know, with some exceptions, governments have made great efforts to put the well-being of their people first. And the exceptions, he notes, are the governments that have not adopted restrictive measures in response to the coronavirus pandemic. And he also says, it is all too easy for some to take an idea, in this case, for example, personal freedom, and turn it into an ideology, creating a prism through which they judge everything. I mean, it was like some very hot tea from papal tea. Exactly. Um, but if we added the Pope to the court, the decision still would have been 5-5. Five, five. We would have been at 5-5 five, um, five five, five, a tie. Okay, um great. So, I mean, like, like, this, like, there's a lot going on. Like, I mean, yeah. the Pope basically, like, let me let me show you a pro-life take. Like, was basically the bottom line of this op-ed. Yes. And, like, let me show you what it means to, again, like, think about other people, right? And, like, regard ourselves as, like, part of a community. One final note on this, which is I took this decision as a pretty powerful indication that we should take Justice Alito's Federalist Society rant – Seriously and literally, because, of course, in that rant, he went out of his way to criticize government's responses to the coronavirus, said religious liberty is under attack, and criticized the decision that Justice Gorsuch criticized the chief for relying on, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. We are going to break down that speech in a special episode. We have a very special guest lined up, but I did want we to We can't do it without Kate either or our special guest. Yes. So, like, Kate would be very mad if we talked about it here and wouldn't actually we're not allowed to talk about it by ourselves. Right. <laughs> Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Oklahoma recently approved the nation's first religious public school. You heard that correctly, a religious public school. If you've paid attention to the Supreme Court over the past few years, you probably noticed a trend. The Supreme Court's ultra-conservative faction gutted church-state protections in order to funnel public money to private religious schools. Oklahoma is Christian nationalist's latest test case, a blueprint for other conservative states to follow. Americans United for Separation of Church and State saw the dangerous precedent a religious public school would create across the country and promptly filed a lawsuit to stop St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School in Oklahoma. This is the latest effort to blur the lines between church and state. Taking tax money and directing it to a religious school that will indoctrinate students into a faith with plans to discriminate against anyone who doesn't adhere goes against the founding principles of our country. Americans United will keep fighting for freedom without favor, equality without exception. Keep up with this issue at au.org. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 
Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. shift gears um all of that happened so much stuff happened in like the space of literally three days right it was just a lot of court and court adjacent news but guess what the court's getting back to work in the first week of december and they've got a lot of hot button cases so one case that i know is near and dear to leah's heart because it is necessary for enforcing the voting rights act is trump versus new york so leah what is going on in trump versus new york again some more So this is the case challenging Trump's memorandum instructing Secretary of Commerce, voting rights hero, and art connoisseur, Wilbur Ross. Yes, art connoisseur. (laughs) Wilbur Ross apparently has like a $50 million art collection. That's necessary to enforce the Voting Rights Act, of course, but back to the case. It challenges the memorandum instructing Wilbur Ross to repair a report that would enable the president to exclude non-citizens from the base population number used to apportion seats in the House of Representatives and allocate federal funds. Every court that has decided whether the memo is illegal has to date declared it unlawful. It's not clear that the Supreme Court will agree. On the day before Thanksgiving, a three-judge panel with two Trump-appointed judges in the majority concluded the challenges to the memo were not yet right. That is, it was not yet time for the courts to decide whether the memo was lawful. The case involves statutory challenges to the memo, constitutional challenges to the memo, and the arguments about whether the dispute is ripe and justiciable. Um, So we will go through each As a threshold matter, there are questions about whether the court will say it is proper to reach the merits at all. The Trump administration has challenged whether the suit is justiciable, mostly on standing grounds, though some of their arguments relate more to ripeness, I think. To be clear, standing and ripeness often can be confusing to distinguish because they all sort of are animated from this Article Three requirement that the court, the federal courts only hear cases or controversies. So sometimes it could be about the particular litigants, they're not the right litigants, or in the case of ripeness or mootness, it's not the right time to hear it or the time has elapsed to hear it. So they're, they're inextricably intertwined because of the Article Three requirement, and sometimes it's hard to distinguish. Yeah. Uh, but and what's, what's the standing ripeness argument for the plaintiffs here? 
So the plaintiffs, um, who are both states and um, organizations and citizens based in particular states, uh, say that certain states are at imminent risk of losing House seats or funding if the administration did apportion representatives or funding while excluding non-citizens from the base apportionment number. But the memo actually says that this is going to happen. Right. The memo itself refers to one state, which the administration concedes is California, as counting so many undocumented individuals that it would lose at least one House seat. So can we step back and like sort of take a 360 view of this and maybe bring in some of the cases we've talked about before? So when we first started the podcast, one of the first cases we talked about was Rucho versus Common Cause, which was the gerrymandering case. And it seems totally separate from the whole question of the commerce case um, about including a question on the census. But they're really actually related because one of the reasons you want to include a question on the census asking about citizenship status is because you don't want to count undocumented persons because counting undocumented persons might inflate the numbers of certain states. And so what you want to do is be able to shift at some point from a population-based model of districting to a citizenship-based model of districting, which would put more power into the hands of those states where you just don't have the same population, the same immigrant communities or populations. And so they're actually inextricably intertwined. And the Republicans won on the gerrymandering issue because the court held that it was a non-justiciable political question. They lost on the census question, but now they are coming back with this question of just like, let's just figure out who the undocumented persons are and exclude them entirely. So it is kind of a backdoor way to get the win that would then complement the win in Rousseau versus Common Cause. Yeah, and it's also related to the census case you were mentioning in other respects as well. I mean, one is it confirms the majority was correct that asking about citizenship was never about enforcing the Voting Rights Act, as the challengers always maintained. I know, mind blown, this is shocking news. Now the administration is trying to do with citizenship information what it maintained it was not was trying not to do. Was not going to do. Exactly. exactly. Draw federal districts and apportion federal funds on the basis of citizens rather than persons. That's, you know, how this case kind of arose. Um, and again, you know, the claims of injury are these states are going to lose funds, seats, from that apportionment. Um, In addition to the memo itself predicting this, there were also expert analyses confirming this projection um, that went largely uncontested. The second claim of injury relates less to future harm and more to past harm. And this is something you flagged on our very first episode that we recorded, namely that the administration announcing this memo and saying they were going to exclude non-citizens from the apportionment That announcement and the very existence of the memo depressed census turnout because certain populations were concerned that, wow, the administration is really trying to suss out citizenship information. And so the states and the plaintiffs are arguing that that depressed census turnout affected the accuracy of the census, undercounted certain groups. Um, And now that the census count has finished, um, while, you know, that might mean the dispute is mute, they argue it falls under an exception to mootness allowing a court to adjudicate it because the time for a census count is so short, like eight or so months, no court could possibly adjudicate the lawfulness of an entire case in that timeline. And therefore, the dispute is what's known as capable of repetition yet evading 
review because it's such a short timeline. A court couldn't review its lawfulness, but it's likely to reoccur given that, you know, again, like the census happens every 10 years and this memo is in place. The arguments against justiciability that the administration um, is making sound to me more like ripeness rather than standing. Again, given that the memo itself announced that states were likely to lose seats, and given that the court's prior decision in Department of Commerce versus New York said that the states had standing because they showed it was sufficiently likely they would lose seats if a citizenship information was included on the census. So the claims of likelihood of injury seem pretty clear and powerful to me. But the administration is arguing that the suit is not justiciable because it's not ripe, given that we're not sure whether or how the administration is actually going to be able to implement this policy, namely preparing a memo that excludes non-citizens from the base apportionment. Like they don't know whether it's feasible for the administration to actually do this. What about prudential stand or sort of prudential questions? Like we've been talking mostly about constitutional justiciability, but what about the whole question of like, should the court even be here, even if it is permitted to do so under the constitution? Yeah. So I think even if you get into prudential ripeness, the challengers have pretty strong arguments because prudential ripeness is supposed to be whether a dispute is fit for judicial resolution. And here's a purely legal question. You know, does this memo violate the relevant statutes and constitution? Um, and also the hardship to the parties about delaying the dispute. And if you delay the resolution of this dispute, you push it to a world in which you possibly have initial numbers of apportionment, and then states try to undergo redistricting, and the federal government wants to allocate funds. And then what are you going to do? Like hold up the redistricting and allocation of the federal funds while you sort this out? So it just seems to me like the injury claims are pretty clear, um, and the ripeness factors that you know are more prudential don't really counsel in favor of waiting, but... It's also insane to me that the court would enjoin New York's restrictions that are no longer in effect and then say, well, we're not actually going to decide the legality of this memo. Well, so that, I mean, that's a great question. Like, how does the court's disposition of the Cuomo case shadow oral arguments in this particular case? Like, sort of like the whole question of judicial restraint. I mean, you know, they are ostensibly like formally different, given that at least the New York restrictions were at one point in effect, whereas this memo, you know, is out there, but the administration's view is we don't know whether it will be actually implemented. Um, but, you know, even there, you have the challenger's point that that memo already caused them injury. And so the court should decide its legality. And I think they're right. All right. So let's switch to the merits. Like, okay. you think the court should get to this, like, this is not a non-justiciable issue. So... What are the merits questions here and how are they shaking out? Yeah. Um, so there's actually one, I think, interesting remedial question, which is if the court accepts the plaintiff's argument that they were injured because the existence of the memo depressed turnout, does that make enjoining the memo going forward proper, given that the harm already occurred? And so the remedy seems like, yeah. you know, a little bit disconnected to that. The merits, however, I think are super easy like, if the court actually reaches the merits, it's obvious that this is unlawful on both statutory and constitutional grounds. The Census Act requires counting of, quote, the whole number of persons. Um, 
Later provisions in the 1929 Census Act likewise require counting total population, and those amendments were enacted after and during a period of intense immigration restrictions. So Congress knew how to write statutes excluding non-citizens. You know, the government is like, well, sometimes we count citizens who aren't physically present in the United States, and so physical presence can't be the whole story. And it's like, okay, well, but it's still a minimum that is sufficient to be counted. So it might not be necessary, but if you're physically present here, there's just nothing that suggests the executive branch has a discretion to exclude people. Um, so those are the statutory challenges, constitutional challenges also related, given that the Constitution likewise refers to whole number of persons and requires apportionment to be based on, quote, numbers determined by actual enumeration. So how do you think this is going to shake out? So we now have the six to three majority, conservative supermajority. Um, we've already seen the impact of that supermajority in one really important case, the Cuomo case. Um, how do you think this shakes out? I think if I had to guess, they'll say it's not ripe or that the remedy doesn't track the claim of injury that they established, namely harm from depressed turnout. That was how the you know three-judge district court in D.C. decided it with two Trump appointees on it and the great Judge Cooper dissenting. Um, and I think that's just what they're going to say. Again, to sort of lay out the timing of this, um, if they are to say that this is just not yet justiciable and, and it gets punted for a while with a change of administration, it's the case that this may just kind of go away and, and they're never going to have to resolve this sort of merits-based question that is more thorny and, and might sort of, again, raise a lot of questions for the public about these kinds of issues and the court's disposition of them. Yeah. And I think, you know, the prospect of a change in administration makes the not ripe, not justiciable finding a lot less concerning or troublesome, mm-hmm. given that I expect right. the Biden administration will say, okay, that's a nice memo. I'd like to prepare a memo that's actually consistent with the statutes and constitution. So let's file this memo <laughs> in the circular file. <laughs> right. All right. Um, so for the December sitting, um, Leah, you predict that a lot of the action are going to be on these questions about justiciability. So let's stay tuned and see if that's the case. Another case that's being argued in December is Edwards versus Vinoy. And I know, Leah, this is another case that's near and dear to your heart um, because it's a question that deals with this whole issue of remedies and what should happen um, in the wake of a significant Supreme Court decision. So tee this one up for us. So this is a case about whether the Supreme Court's decision from last term, Ramos versus Louisiana, applies retroactively to criminal cases that have become final. Ramos, of course, is a decision that held it was unconstitutional for states to convict persons using non-unanimous juries. It overruled a 1972 decision that had permitted them. Um, In so doing, the court specifically referenced the racist origins of the non-unanimous jury rule. As a general rule, most decisions of constitutional criminal procedure don't apply to cases that have become final, cases where your appeals and time to file a petition at the court have ended. But under the- But there are exceptions. Yes, there are exceptions. Under Teague versus Lane, so-called old rules that are dictated by precedent, as well as watershed new rules that implicate fundamental fairness and accuracy in criminal trials, do apply retroactively. There's one other category of rules that applies retroactively, but that's not implicated here. So, well, so the defendant is arguing, um, as on, in the first instance, that 
Ramos did not create a new rule, that it simply reaffirmed an old rule that was logically dictated by extant precedent. So they're, they're saying basically what Ramos did was bring the Supreme Court's jurisprudence in line with its other Sixth Amendment jurisprudence. And, and again, this goes back to the language in Ramos that talks about um, Apodaca and Johnson being constitutional outliers, like they're sort of like weird anomalies and, you know, this particular decision is going to bring them back into alignment. And so in that particular case, Ramos would apply retroactively because all it does is reaffirm the old rule that should apply in all cases. So that's one of the arguments the defendants are making. The defendants also arguing that Ramos is a watershed rule of criminal procedure. Um, That argument which I am very sympathetic to, is quite difficult to pull off in light of the court's current doctrine because the court has basically said there aren't any such watershed rules of criminal procedure that haven't already been announced um, in cases like Wharton or Shiro or Tyler. And the court ruled in Shiro specifically that the Supreme Court's decision in Apprendi versus New Jersey, which required juries, not judges, to find all elements of an offense beyond a reasonable doubt was not a watershed rule of criminal procedure. Um, as I alluded to, I think under a proper understanding of what watershed rules are, this could be a watershed rule, but getting there would require a court who thinks that their prior statements about watershed rules are wrong, overbroad, and possibly the Shiro's wrongly decided. Just to say about the watershed rules and the idea that there have been no watershed rules, I was clerking when Apprendi was decided, and it felt like a watershed <laughs> rule. Yeah. I mean, because like we, we basically had to go back and yeah. redo all kinds of things right. um, after Apprendi. And and again, so if that is not a watershed rule, I don't know what would be. Right. And so I, I think you're right. That, that is going to be a hard argument. Um, the argument that Ramos didn't introduce a new rule but merely ratified existing documents, doctrine is compelling given the majority's arguments and Ramos. But I just want to sort of point out that Again, one of the things that the briefs in this particular case continually refer back to is this idea that what Ramos is trying to do is root out a policy that had racist origins. And they keep sort of hammering down, like there's a there's a brief from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, brief from the Centers on Race and the Law, including the NYU Center on Race and Inequality. And I take the point, I get it, but I think in continually hammering this idea that Ramos is a decision that is intended to correct a racial injustice, they are just laying the foundation for race to be used to interrogate other existing precedents, including Roe versus Wade. So I'm just like, go easy on this for a minute, people. (laughs) Like there are other cases in the offing here. But again, some very interesting amicus briefs in this case, the MacArthur Justice Center brief. This is written by Debbie Rao, um, pointing out that Louisiana and other states would not be bound by retroact- at a retroactivity determination since the states can decide to apply retroactively rules that they're not required to do and, and urging the court to avoid reaching this particular question. There's also a brief from the Promise of Justice Initiative that argues that about 1,600 cases would be a Affected by this particular decision. And then there are a number of briefs sort of emphasizing the racial dimensions of this particular ruling and the idea that some of the people who have been convicted under these non-unanimous jury rules are African-American defendants who might have been um, who, who might not have been convicted otherwise if, if, a unan- if unanimity had been required. So lots of interesting briefs here. Yeah. Two other cases we wanted to preview. 
Well, so there's a great case I thought was really interesting. Um, it's a really good little nugget, Van Buren versus United States. And it concerns the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, CFAA, which makes it a federal crime to either access a computer without authorization or to exceed that user's authorized access and obtain information. So it seems like a pretty straightforward statute, but here's the question. What happens if you're someone who is authorized to access information on a computer for certain purposes, but you actually use it for other non-authorized purposes? Does use of the computer by an authorized person for an unauthorized use constitute a violation of the CFAA? And I'll just say the facts here are super salacious and interesting. So Andrew Albo asked Van Buren, who is the defendant here, to run a computer search for a license plate number that supposedly belonged to a local exotic dancer. Unbeknownst to Van Buren, this was all part of an FBI investigation with which Albo was cooperating. And Albo told Van Buren that he wanted the license plate run because he really liked the dancer and wanted to investigate her to make sure that she wasn't an undercover police officer before he called her up and asked her for a date or something. Um, and Van Buren, who had requested a loan from Albo, and Albo seemed to make all of this contingent on him giving the loan, said that he would do it for Albo again for this loan. And so he runs the license plate search. Albo gives him $6,000 and then the FBI shows up right. and nails him. Yeah. And he sends right. to 18 so, months in prison. 18 months in prison. So the impact of this case goes beyond these shady facts. Um, as the defendant's brief notes, if the CFAA's language is interpreted to include as violations improper uses by authorized users, it could render violations of anodyne computer use regulations and policies like, for example, employers' computer use policies, websites, terms of service, and third-party restrictions on certain websites like inflating your height on a dating website or checking sports scores at work. All of these could be rendered federal crimes under the CFFA if this particular um, interpretation was used. And so, Van Buren is fighting for his life here. He's been charged with violating the CFAA and has been convicted and sentenced to 18 months imprisonment, as Leah notes. Uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit upheld his conviction and rejected his argument that he could not have violated the CFAA because he had permission to access the databases. The CFAA defines exceeds authorized access as to access a computer with authorization and to use such access to obtain or alter information in the computer that the accessor is not entitled so to obtain or alter. Um, the natural reading of that particular text uh, would seem to exclude misuse or misappropriation. Um, the statutory language doesn't say anything about the purpose for which you're doing this. And indeed, it was conceived of as an anti-hacking law. So again, one of the defendant's arguments here is that to interpret it in this way, to apply to authorized users who are using it for improper uses, would really expand the scope of the statute far beyond its legislative purpose. Um, so I, I think this is going to be a really fun and interesting case, um, straight up statutory interpretation. I think we're going to see a lot of discussions of textualism versus purposivism here. And I wonder if our resident favorite textualist, Justice Gorsuch, will have lots to say here. I am cautiously optimistic. Um, 
for the defendant in this case. I think, you know, for the reasons you gave, I think the defendant has a pretty strong textual argument. I also think that the fears about how the statute could be used that you noted could really resonate with justices who have expressed concerns about the broad scope and far-reaching implications about statutes like these, whether it's the Chief Justice or Justice Gorsuch. Um, And it reminds me of cases where these similar concerns have, again, like carried the day, whether that's Kelly, the, you know, anti-corruption case we talked about, or earlier cases like Yates and Bond, you know, the defendant kind of lists all of these and situates this case as of a piece with those in the opening part of the brief. The defendant is represented by Jeff Fisher and the Stanford Supreme Court Litigation Clinic. Um, So great lawyering, great arguments. And again, I'm just cautiously optimistic. So look for that one. That'll be interesting. We'll see if it's like Bridgegate. Um, Another case that's coming up in this December sitting is Cargill versus Doe, also being argued in tandem with Nestle versus Doe. And this case is about whether the alien tort statute applies to allegations that a U.S. company conducted oversight of foreign operations at headquarters and whether a domestic corporation can be sued under the alien tort statute. So one case here, the one involving Nestle, involves six former child slaves who were trafficked from Mali to work on cocoa farms in the Ivory Coast. They maintain that the U.S. corporations have supported and maintained a system of child slavery and forced labor, and they allege that the corporation continued to provide financial and technical assistance to plantations despite knowing that they relied on slavery. So for farming supplies, training and capacity building, um, advanced payments, financial spending money to obtain loyalty for suppliers. All of these were forms of the support that the corporation offered to the plantations, even though the plantations were using these highly questionable labor practices. Um, so a note here, a case called Kiabel announced a quote-unquote touch and concern test. Um, and again, Jesner versus Arab Bank has held that foreign corporations cannot be sued. So this would all seem to weigh in favor of a sort of broad insulation of corporate interests from the alien tort statute. But of course, the question here is um, what happens when you have a company that actually has domestic ties or touches and concerns domestic operations? So that will be a really interesting question, um, you know, really interesting, I think, for whether or not the sort of pro-business block of the court will want to see the alien tort statute apply in this particular context as well. I doubt it's likely. Yeah, I'm not optimistic. And Justice Gorsuch has written separately in these cases to uh, embrace a theory that suggests the federal courts actually lack jurisdiction over these cases because they don't even involve federal questions. They involve international law, which is not, you know, a federal law. And I I just, it's difficult for me to count to five for the plaintiffs in these cases, which I think is deeply unfortunate. And so we will be right there with them listening alongside as, again, these particular arguments will be live streamed via audio platform. So you can check it out on C-SPAN or whatever else when that happens. Do you want to do some court culture, Leah? I do. Because okay, let's do it. It concerns the advent of a new administration, which cannot come soon enough. And this is the dawning of the, <laughs> of the <queen. laughs> It's not quite like that. Kind of. Um, 
with <laughs> with a new administration comes new nominees. And so we wanted to spend some time offering unsubstantiated speculation. Well, let's also note, with the old administration, we had new nominees all the time. That's true. Well, they weren't even really nominees. They were just like a slew of different actings that, you know, came in since they couldn't actually send any of the people they wanted to confirm to the Senate because they were all like weird conspiracy theorists that didn't actually have any relevant expertise. Let's talk about some of these possible administrative positions. Um, and we should talk about DOJ specifically. So who are you thinking? So um, brief side rant before we do that. Um, something <laughs> sorry, this is what happens when Kate isn't here. Kate would have cut the side rant portion. <laughs> like, I was like, trying to cut the side rant portion. But. There's just something that did not rub me super well when you know, after the media outlets called the election for Joe Biden, a bunch of people kind of took to Twitter to just offer speculation about who the nominees in the Biden administration would be and, you know, recommending like some of their friends as being great. And I love supporting friends. I love the advent of a new administration. I love the idea of great people going, you know, to work for government offices that have been hollowed out. But something just didn't strike me as quite right when those same people who were like so excited to get in the door of an administration and like have their friends doing so, like, we're not willing to partake in kind of doing the work to get this administration out the door, particularly as they, you know, are refusing to concede and are trying to overthrow the election and have been enabling so many anti-democratic norms. I just feel like if you're not willing to expand your political capital and like trying to do kind of like the right thing for our democracy, like I don't want to kind of reward that. And I just don't think that's where all, all of your energy should be. My opinion. All right. So the TLDR of the rant is don't make suggestions if you're not willing to like put some skin in the game, right. defending the administration against claims of voter fraud and election tampering and whatnot. Right. So with that out of the way, now for the speculation. Melissa, do you want to go first? Who do you see as possible candidates for Solicitor General or maybe Principal Deputy Solicitor General? Mm-hmm. in the new administration. There was a lot of speculation that the Biden-Harris nominee for Solicitor General would likely be a woman, maybe even a woman of color. And that actually would be unprecedented. Um, there has been a woman Solicitor General, Justice Elena Kagan was the first. Um, there have been, to my knowledge, um, four men of color who have served as Solicitor General. So Thurgood Marshall was the first African-American. Drew Wade Days. McCree was the second. Drew Days was the third. And then Noel no Francisco. Francisco. Um, so, you know, there, there have been more men of color, but there haven't been any women of color. So I, I thought it was interesting that there was just a lot of speculation that this post was obviously likely to be filled by a woman. So who are some of the leading candidates? Well, there is Leandra Kruger, who is currently an associate justice of the California Supreme Court. Um, she would be fantastic. She was in the Solicitor General's office before being appointed to the California Supreme Court. There is, of course, um, Pam Carlin, who is a fierce and righteous advocate for civil rights. Um, She's a law professor at Stanford Law School. Uh, She would be terrific. Um, There's Ginger Anders, my co-clerk, and the woman who played the violin at my wedding. Wow. (laughs) I know. Um, She's fantastic. Um, She would be terrific. Also, there's been discussion of Christina Swarns, Janae Nelson of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Lindsay Harrison, Sarah Harrington, and then some men have been included as well. Deepak Gupta, Jeff Fisher, Andy Pincus. Um, so a wide range. And again, I have no quibbles about any of these. I mean, I actually would love to see a woman in this position. And again, you know, we have harped on the fact that um, 
those arguing before the Supreme Court have, there have been precious few women mm-hmm. and even fewer women of color be- appearing before the court. Um, this might be a really interesting way to sort of not just up that number with a woman in the position, but the fact that a woman is in a position may lead younger lawyers to think more about doing service in the Solicitor General's office. And, and maybe that would sort of expand the folks who are in those positions and have a chance to argue before the court. Yeah. Um, and I also think having an administration that is not going to be arguing for such outlandish propositions, you know, could itself go away to making the office more inclusive um, uh, and an attractive place to work for some people. Um, some other names I would throw in there is Lauren Alicon who's the um, Solicitor General of D.C., Elizabeth uh, Preligar, who was um, in the Mueller team and previously uh, in the Solicitor General's office, um, Catherine Carroll, Danielle Spinelli, and Kate Stetson. Um, so a lot of great candidates for them to choose from, um, and we'll see what they do. And as you noted, you know, having a woman in the Solicitor General and Deputy Solicitor General position would go a long way to increasing women's representation at the court, which is so poor, you know, looking ahead to the sitting that we are discussing now, the December sitting, there are 27 advocates appearing, three are women, zero are women of color, um, and I think four might be men of color, but it's just appalling. And there are no women arguing from the Solicitor General's office right. in this December sitting, so there's that. Um, so yeah, um, those are our takes. Like, we think all of these people would be fantastic, so, yeah. you know, free advice from... right. From the Strict Scrutiny pod, you're welcome. (laughs) I think that's all we have time for. Um, We got a lot going on. We will have more for you coming up in the next couple of weeks, some really exciting developments. So stay tuned, watch this space. Um, But until then, Leah, I'll leave it to you to close us out. Thank you, everyone, for listening. You make the show possible. And if you would like to support the show, um, consider becoming a supporter on our Glow campaign, which you can do at glow.fm forward slash strict scrutiny. Or you can get a strict scrutiny glow up by getting some new merchandise, including some normal scrutiny, listen to the pod, Rudy style links um, at our website, strictscrutinypodcast.com, or just rate us on iTunes if you enjoy the show. Thank you to our producer, Melody Rowell, who is going to have to edit out a lot of my takes that were a little bit too hot for the airwaves. There's some spicy takes. Um, <laughs> like you were like, you know, DoorDash, put the spice level at high. <laughs> right. Way spicier than even a Justice Sotomayor descent. Um, thank you to Eddie Cooper, who makes our music. Um, and thank you again to all of you. We'll see you soon. 